3: Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Melissa Lee. and today for Scott Wapner, a wild ride for stocks as Russia invades Ukraine. The S&P falls deeper into correction territory. The Nasdaq fell into a bear market before wiping out heavy losses. We'll debate the best strategies for protecting your portfolio in this turmoil. Our investment committee today, Bryn Talkington, Steve Weiss, Josh Brown, and Pete Nigerian co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Let's get a check on the markets at this hour. As we mentioned, what a ride today. The S&P down for a fifth day, having its worst month since March 2020. The Nasdaq did fall into a bear market before wiping out some of its big losses. Um, big cap technology, really the winner here, along with a lot of the innovation names, the ARK Innovation ETF for one is up by 2% right now. Uh, the 10-year yield, we're seeing it at 195%. We're also keeping a close eye, by the way, on the White House. President Biden is expected to speak this hour about sanctions against Russia. We'll carry that speech live. Go to it as soon as we begin. Pete Nigerian, what do you make of this market action?
4: Well, if you want volatility, we certainly have it, Mel. I mean, the intraday volatility is just absolutely outrageous of late. And we've all seen it play out right in front of us, whether it was yesterday, the day before, or going into today and, and just watching these reversals. That's pretty incredible. We're seeing a lot of that buying. Now, will we be able to hold on to it, for instance, in the triple Q's today on this big rally to the upside from where we started off the day? I think, Mel, if I'm not mistaken, weren't we down over 400, maybe 450 points in the pre-market for the triple Q's, and then all of a sudden we get all the way back now and we're in green territory? That's pretty extraordinary. We look at that volatility index, it's been a big range, we were pushing up towards 38 i've always said to everybody volatility does mean a lot and the velocity of that volatility even more but when we get up towards those mid to upper 30s that really is a difficult spot to hold for very long and the reason i say that is when you're looking at that mel that is implying that we are going to have a two and a half over two percent move every single day so unless we expect to see that every single day it wouldn't be surprising to me to see us start to fall back a little bit if we can hold on to some of the gains that we're seeing today.
3: Does it feel like maybe we'll look back on today and and think that maybe we've we've reached some sort of fair value for a technology brand? I mean, I'm curious what you make of this, this this willingness to go in and buy the big dip that we saw earlier in the session.
5: Melissa, well, I think it's really interesting. I mean, to, to Pete's point about the huge drawdown in the morning and how quickly we've recovered. I mean, the Nasdaq going back to 1970, when you've had these 10 plus percent declines in the NASDAQ, the average decline was around 19 percent. This morning, I think we hit 21 percent. And so if you just take a step back and you have a 20 percent decline in an asset class, albeit it's done incredibly well the last 10 years, I think people are coming in and saying, we have to at least nibble and buy the dip. And I think also when you look back at these you know, skirmishes or wars going back to Vietnam. The day of the invasion has been the day to buy, not the day to sell. And I think that people are looking at that. And, and I think on top of that, you know, earnings in technology are still gonna be very strong, but so many of these companies, Melissa, have come down dramatically. And if you look at the companies in the NASDAQ, not just the NASDAQ 100, but the NASDAQ as a whole, more companies today, are at 52 week lows than in 2008 and 2002. So there's been severe damage, severe multiple derating in that. And I think that this event is causing some people to come in. And I also think it takes off that the Fed is going to do a 50 basis point hike, which puts a little bit of a, a small bid under tech, as people thought that was going to happen, which, which definitely was, was selling down tech on top of inflation.
3: I mean, not too long ago, we were all getting all, you know, ge- bu- geared up, geeked up, whatever you want to call it, about Alphabet's earnings. We were saying maybe this is the start of a re-rating given the strength of the quarter. We lost all of those gains from the quarter and then some, Josh, and here we are up 1% in the session. Did you find yourself wanting to buy some of the pullbacks?
0: Yeah, and I actually I, actually I did. I backed into a few stocks that I had very, very low-priced. Um, buy limit orders in, which I know we're going to get to later in the show, so I don't want to say too much there. I just think big picture, the thing for our viewers to remember is the difference between a regular investor versus a professional. And everybody probably remembers back in the day when Maria Bartiromo uh, was hosting and she would like start every interview with, so are you putting money to work here? Are you putting money to work here? Are you putting She never got to no. know. Because professionals who run long-only, fully invested funds have to buy. They have to be doing something all the time. You're never going to hear a professional say, no, I'm not putting money to work here, if that's their mandate, the type of fund that they run. However... Most of our viewers are not in that boat. They don't have to do something just because the market does something. And I've actually been listening to Steve Weiss on the show all year talking about his hesitance to just be throwing money into the market because it opened at 930. He's, he's been right uh, to, to, to be somewhat hands off. I've been trying to communicate that message as well. It's not that we should be worried and never buy stocks. It's that we're not forced to. We're not compelled to. Almost everything is in a downtrend right now. I don't see that stopping. I'm glad some of the big tech stocks bounced today. I guess that's kind of cool. They shouldn't go down 50 days in a row. But really, this is a bear market. Statistically, I know it's not yet for the S&P, but trust me, it is in real life. And that should tell you that you have three choices here. A, you could do a lot more than you normally would. I don't think most people are served by that. B, you could do a lot less. Okay, not bad. And C... What the majority of Americans are probably doing, you could do nothing. You could do nothing. So that's my message. I think it's important. You should stick to the strategy that you're running right now. Not go in search of a new one. Not look at what worked yesterday in the the market and try to emulate it. Sit tight. Let's see how this plays out. There's a long way to go uh, between what happened this morning and where things could be headed.
3: Weiss, for a long time, you've been saying that you don't need to be in the market, as Josh had said, that you like cash right now. I mean, at what point do you say it may be time to deploy some capital? I know that you don't feel the need to, you don't feel the pressure to, but when you see a turnaround like this, do you think maybe we've reached some sort of fair value point for technology? Well,
2: I don't really think it's about fair value, and I agree with everything Josh said and would point out that. This is a lot like Pavlov's dog. Market goes down and you know, people think they have to buy. Professional managers think they have to buy. Keep in mind that most professional asset managers are not the asset allocators, you know, to put a point on what Josh was saying. They get allocated cash for their specific strategy, which is to invest that cash into stocks. So that's what they do. So the bell rings, markets down, and you invest. Look. Geopolitical risk has, for the most part, been buying opportunities, but we haven't seen geopolitical risk like this. This is not some, some you know, skirmish in the Middle East between two of the countries there that don't like each other for the last 3,000 years. This is Russia making a major move into Ukraine that I believe will be followed up by China making a major move on Taiwan so while there's temptation to buy when it's down i don't think the market's done going down and for all the people that criticize and say hey you can't pick bottoms you can't pick tops well one thing i can pick and that's to focus on risk management and protect my downside i'd rather miss 10 percent to the upside versus current levels which i think by the way as i said will go lower than catch the next 10 percent down because that takes so much more to replace and provides you with so much angst. So look, so I'm still bearish in the market. I still believe we're in a bear market in a very unusual time. That's the perfect storm for equities with a rising rate cycle, with the Fed unable and unwilling to do anything to cushion the downside. The Fed put no longer exists. It hasn't looked for a long time, existed for a long time. So I'm content just staying in lots of cash, maybe picking things here and there, but I'd rather be hedged and and not not lose more money because the pain of losing money, as I've said before, is much greater to me in terms of sensation than the victory in making money.
3: All that said, Josh, you bought Meta today. Why Meta?
0: So I bought Restoration Hardware. I know they call it RH now, but I'm not going to change the way I say it. And I bought Meta, and again, I backed into both of these. I had extraordinarily ridiculous uh, purchase prices put in uh, a long time ago in these stocks. Never thought I would get them. It's actually miraculous that I did. Facebook, I bought right at the open at a 52-week low, like 190 and change. Um, I look like a genius a few minutes later. Uh, I don't know if this is a a long-term investment. It's probably more of a trade, Um, but this is among those large-cap, Uh, Tech stocks that have already been cut in half and are now bouncing today for no other reason than maybe uh, there's nobody left to sell. We'll see what happens there. RH is a little bit different. That's probably the beginning of a new longer term investment position. Um, I don't think, regardless of whether rates are at 0% or 1%, that that's going to materially change the demand for housing, for decor, for uh, renovation. And I think RH is probably the highest quality company in the space. One of the best ways to play the idea that another 5 million uh, millennial households are going to form in the next couple of years. And uh, RH has great margins, great business model. It's Costco-esque in terms of having that membership that keeps the fans of the brand continuing to come back there to shop. And I like a lot of aspects of how they're handling e-commerce. So uh, that's a stock, By the way... RH was uh, almost $750 a share. I bought it this morning at like, uh, I bought it at like 360 something or three. So like the, the idea of being able to get really high quality stocks at half the price they were selling at a few months ago is very attractive to me. I have a few more of these orders out there. We'll see what happens. I'll keep you guys updated. Um, but that's what I tend to be doing in markets like these.
3: I don't want to bog down the conversation with this, but I mean, just because a stock was at 700 something dollars doesn't mean it should have ever been at 700 and something dollars. So when when people are thinking about buying stocks at a discount, um, I'm what do you wondering, mean should?
0: What do, we, what do you mean? What do you mean it, should, though?
3: Maybe it was overpriced then. Maybe like it, it never like deserved it that deserve? valuation. I mean, I'm, it, the notion that you're buying it at yeah. half price implies that it should have been at that price to begin with. Right. And so is that the way investors should view the market when it sees, for instance, the ARK Innovation ETF down whatever 70 percent? Are you getting it at 70 percent off or should those stocks have ever been that high to begin with? And I think in this kind of market, I, I mean, I'm asking this question because I think a lot of viewers at home, Bryn, are thinking that. Should you think about it from the highs and you're getting it at a discount? I mean, how how do you judge what a stock is valued at right now, at this point in time?
5: Well, I mean, I think that as it relates to, like, a restoration hardware and a Facebook, I think those are secular trends. But to—so I think those are good entry points. But to your broader question, you have to look at the individual names. So— You know i'm an investor in arc we've we've been an investor we've talked about it a kajillion times do i think all of the names in arc are going to be winners no i think there's going to be a bunch of losers in there that actually don't take market share um but do i think there's companies like a coinbase that are really cheap here do i think potentially um salesforce which is half off is potentially cheap here and so you really have to dig in do your work do your valuation look again and say hey i'm going to stress test this company do I want to own it going forward? Because, you know, you have to remember you don't have to make it back the same way you lost it. And so do I think Peloton is ever going to be at 160? No, I think it was, I think it's a cool company. Everyone has a Peloton bike, but do I think it should have been at 130 or 160? No, I think it's going to sit here in the thirties and forties and languish because it's a, it's a, they sell equipment with an expensive subscription model. And so I think it's individual by individual security. And so that being said, though, Melissa, when, when the NASDAQ as a whole, the QQQs are down 20 percent, when you get those pure drawdowns, I think you can take those 100 names and have that basket. And, you know, we're getting to the levels where these are good entry points because there's been so much damage in the NASDAQ that you can take that NASDAQ 100 as an entry point potentially today or tomorrow. And I think a year from now, I don't think you're sad with that. You're upset with that, with that mm-hmm. trade today. Speaking of ARC,
3: Pete, you bought ARC puts?
4: I did, the ARC innovation puts, yeah. So, we, what we'd seen, Mel, was we had some really interesting option activity out there in April. They were buying the April 55 puts, they were selling the April 50 puts. That spread, that $5 spread, they were paying for about a dollar for that spread. I loved what I was seeing there. As a matter of fact, I loved it even more this morning, although it's made a nice rally back, but it hit new lows today. So it's something where I'm going to hold on to it. I got a little bit of time. This isn't like most everything else that we've seen in the options world where it's all been one week out, two weeks out, maybe three weeks out. I've got until April. And if they continue to pound upon some of these NASDAQ names, specifically a lot of those names that obviously are within this fund that had high multiples or no multiples, then this should be a winning trade. So I'm gonna hold on to this one for a little while. Obviously, if it can break down significantly, I'll then start to take it off. But I like having this on. It's a little bit of almost a protection for some of the the more riskier assets that I've got in within my own portfolio. So we're seeing options in there. We're seeing options in a lot of different parts of the market. No doubt about it. A lot of people trying to dip their toes into Apple and AMD and NVIDIA and everywhere that that you go across all those names that we all love. We've talked about for a really long period of time, but they haven't been right yet. And I'm not so convinced (laughs) that today is the day where we've suddenly hit bottoms either, Mel. I think that we still have a little bit of room. Based upon what we started off of the day, I wouldn't be surprised if we tested again.
3: I mean, the troubling thing about Apple, you mentioned Apple, Pete, is that Apple, unlike a lot of the other mega cap tech stocks, Steve, Apple's actually down on the day. And and while it recovered some of its losses, it's still down about a percent. And Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting wrote this morning that Apple is on the verge of breaking the uptrend that it's been in, that's been in place since the COVID pandemic low. Um, this is the biggest stock out there. Weiss, this seems like it would be concerning. Is it to you?
2: Well, that's one way to look at it, but I don't think you have to even you know, bother with the technicals. As I mentioned earlier, I do think China going after Taiwan, and they don't have to physically invade. All they have to do is, is just ratchet up you know, the, the talk on it, which they were doing before the Olympics. And it's been my view for, for months now that after the Olympics they will do it. And guess what? Apple employs a million people in China, and while China is friendly with Apple because of who they employ there, that would be disastrous for their supply chain. So I think that's one reason why the stock's down. The other reason is, look, it, you know, the market's down, and it's an S&P component. Uh, it's, of course, a NASDAQ component. So that's why it should trade down. There's a, there's a major you know, valuation umbrella in the market still right now that exists. And you've still got the market trading at a slight premium to long-term historical multiple. Yet you've got Russia, Ukraine, you've got China, you've got you know, consumer confidence at a 10-year low as of the last reading. I think that's even going to go lower, below 60 You've got, in, you've got inflation that, while it may have come down a little bit in some areas, it's going up in food, it's going up in energy, and people just can't afford to live month to month anymore. It's too challenging. So with that as the background, to me, the P.E. on the market should be at a discount to the historical level, not to where it is now. Just because stocks have come down, it doesn't make them any cheaper if the earnings have come down as well.
0: So, Steve, what about rates though? So that's
2: why the long what, answer is. What about I'm not rates surprised. though? Because I'm
0: sorry? What, I, I wanted to ask, what, what about isn't the countervailing force to everything that you've just said why multiples should even be lower? The fact that we get that average long term multiple historically, most of that period of time, interest rates were meaningfully higher. Like, doesn't that to some extent offset? A lot of the stuff that you said, not that it's going to save anybody, but just that here's why the the multiple should be elevated above history.
2: Josh, you make a great point, and and I've thought about it, Um, but here's why I've discounted it, because it's where it's where rates come from. And we've seen almost a doubling in the 10 year yield in the past year and up significantly from just a few months ago when it was one2 so to me, it's the rate of change that nearer term is more controlling. Ultimately, you'd be right, money is still going to be very cheap, for sure. But the Fed has to get the rate up even more than the 2% or 25 to be able to do something, to have some arrows in their quiver if the country goes into recession. Right now, it doesn't so so i i don't completely disagree but i think the other forces are just too strong mm-hmm. overpowering where rates are actually right now
3: let's get more on rates and the fed um let's get to steve leesman you're looking steve at what the russia ukraine crisis means for the red the rate hike plan i guess 50 off the table
1: yeah melissa fed officials uh, a bunch have spoken so far saying They're monitoring the situation in Ukraine carefully for any potential economic and financial impacts. But they're sticking to their position that rates do need to go up and markets, as Melissa suggests, are pricing out the most extreme moves by the Fed. Here's Loretta Mester, her remark just came saying the implications of the unfolding situation in Ukraine for the medium run economic outlook in the U.S. will also be a consideration in determining the appropriate pace at which to remove accommodation notice he said pace not that they're going to consider it at all and richard fed president tom barkin saying as a result of the russian invasion i don't think you're going to see much change to the underlying logic that rates need to normalize okay so the initial market reaction has been to dial out the chance of a 50 basis point rate hike in march that would from 66% a couple of weeks ago now down to 13% but predictions for future rate increases Interestingly, they're pretty well intact. Take a look. March is dialed in at 100, May dialed in at 100. That's another 25 basis point rate hike. Uh, June comes down to 95%, uh, July 73%, and September, December all showing uh, higher than 50% probabilities of rate hike. So that's six hikes to 1.625% by the end of the year. Uh, as Steve Weiss was saying, Pretty dramatic rise, but still relatively low rates, as Josh Brown was saying. Okay, here are some connections between Russia and the U.S. Russia holding a small amount of U.S. Treasury, so not much real concern there. And U.S. banks likely have limited exposure to Russia, more for European banks. Russia is a major supplier, as you all know, of oil and other commodities. So taking Russian commodities off of world markets, potentially through sanctions, could boost inflation, complicating the Fed's job. On the upside, U.S. growth is recovering from the Omicron wave. So that's also a plus side for the U.S. economy and a potential impact. A separate downside risk could come from European economic and financial exposure and connections to Russia. That could ricochet, Melissa, back on the U.S.
3: So let's let's say that there was an oil shock, Stephen. it wasn't. Let's just remove Ukraine and Russia from, from the table. We, we said right. oil's at 100 and it's going to stay there for a while. How would the Fed, how would that factor into the Fed's thinking. I mean, it's, it's under the rubric of geopolitical, and that might be seen as, you know, transit You look through it, et cetera, et cetera. But, but if oil remains above 100, it's a headwind to the economy. It is inflation.
1: Right, right. And and, and you didn't use the Latin, what is certeris paribus"? all other things being equal, which is, I think, what you meant. The, the Fed would step back, Melissa, from monetizing that and still continue, I believe, to withdraw stimulus from the economy, both through uh, uh rate hikes and balance sheet reduction because it would have to deal with the potential uh impact both to actual inflation and to inflationary psychology it will try to draw lessons from the 1970s where it did essentially monetize an oil shock to the economy so i i think that's what it would do but perhaps do so more slowly and watch for other impacts potentially to consumer sentiment and consumer spending that could create uh underlying uh, declines in underlying demand
0: Josh, got a question? Yeah, Steve, so when the Fed thinks about the events in Eastern Europe and, and, and as it pertains to Russia, they're probably, or hopefully, they're thinking about the, uh, the, the impact on sentiment more than the actual impact on economics. Bank of America's out with a note saying that if you calculate all the S&P 500 sales to Russia, for example... It's about 0.1 percent, or effectively zero. Right. Um, right. Russia is not really involved in supply chains, uh, even even central right. and eastern Europe. They don't tend to ship a lot of goods to Russia. It's really not a player. Uh, to the point where it would have like a GDP impact. We we agree
1: on no, that. No, right? uh, Russia is the eleventh largest uh, GDP in the country, and uh, what's interesting here, and this is sort of a, a, a you know one of those macabre upsides, if you might, which is that the 2014 uh, invasion of Crimea, uh, as a result of that, I was talking to banking industry expert this morning. U.S. banks dialed out or dialed away, moved away from. Uh, uh, integration with Russia. The whole Putin regime has been one that has prompted U.S. businesses as well as U.S. investment and the interconnection of Russia and the United States to uh, go further apart compared to, for example, the policy in the 1990s when I was there, when the idea was integration. Uh, it's, it's moved further apart. The bigger problem you want to watch out for, Josh, is this connection between Europe and Russia, which is obviously more more integrated sure. the other sure. uh caveat i'll give to my uh answer here is we need to watch the sanctions how deep do they go into the financial system uh for example excluding russian banks from swift doesn't look like they're going to do that but those are the sort of things you want to watch for that have i would say some potential systemic risk though i would say it's limited
3: well i mean i think that there's other sort of there's a there's a whole if you want to view it like a spider web and you sort of go out and the web gets bigger right. and bigger and bigger um connections to China I mean you mentioned the russian holdings of us treasuries obviously if china actually comes out hard in support of russia it has a vast holding of us treasuries and so that would be of a concern or if there's secondary sanctions on china because it does business to russia and it enables them to to get around sanctions put on by the west that that's a whole other ball of wax
1: let me, let me just tell you from my experience in my Russian days is a lot of uh, geopolitical experts have been wrong suggesting that Russia and China were going to, going to form some form of alliance against the United States. They flirt with each other, they dance around each other, they have a very long border with each other. Um, it is always a fear when these sort of things come happen. You cannot rule it out, but it has not happened and it's always brought up. Uh, and China always works in its own interest and oftentimes that does not coincide with the interest of Russia.
3: All right, Steve, thank you for the perspective. Always good to see you, Steve Leisman. Thanks. Up next, how hedge funds are positioning in this market as we head to break. Let's take a check on the markets here. Still uh, deeply in the red. The Dow is down by 2.2%. The S&P 500 losing some ground as well, down one and a half percent. The Nasdaq is back in the red, down at six tenths of a percent. Halftime is back in two.
7: Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. Moments ago, Britain announced sweeping new sanctions against Russia. Prime Minister Boris Johnson says that the U.K. will freeze assets of all major Russian banks and impose economic sanctions on more than 100 individuals, entities and subsidiaries. High-tech exports to Russia will also be restricted. Just outside Kyiv, a Russian helicopter gunship was reportedly forced to land. Ukrainian media reported Russian helicopters flying over the capital. Not far away, President Zelensky says that Ukrainian forces are stopping a Russian airborne attack on a key cargo airport. He says many Russian warplanes and armored vehicles were destroyed. He did not, however, give numbers. In keep proper, police are assessing the damage from missile attacks. The mayor has ordered a curfew, which will start in less than three hours. Public transportation will not be available during the curfew, and subway stations are being turned into shelters. And on the news tonight, what impact the growing sanctions will have on Russia and how likely they are to stop Russian attacks, that's tonight at 7 Eastern. Melissa?
3: Rahel, thank you. Rahel Solomon. Let's take a closer look now at the levels investors need to watch from here. Joining us on the phone, Jonathan Krinsky, Chief Market Technician at BTIG. Jonathan, great to have your take. Um, What are you seeing in the charts right now?
8: Yeah, thanks, Melissa. Uh, So one of the things we've been kind of talking about is the lack of full capitulation that we've seen, you know, despite the fact that the market's down substantially year-to-date, we actually have not seen a major distribution day, which we would define as 90% of all NYSE volume occurring in declining stocks. And we got close to that in the open today, but, you know, we're not not there at at the current time. And so, really, in order to get one of those type of days, you need to see, um, you know, all Pretty much all sectors get hit, and, you know, we are starting to see a little bit of that with the worst sectors today are, have been kind of the areas that have held out the best, so financials, staples, materials, some of the cyclicals, and so those are those are getting hit, but, you know, we're, we're seeing a little bit of an offset by some of the um, high-growth, long-duration sectors that have been uh beaten down. So we're not getting that full capitulation today, but I think the bigger picture and something that investors need to kind of reset their expectations for is that there's an element of time to to corrections. And I think the COVID crash was kind of the anomaly. It only took 23 trading days from high to low for for it to be over. And that's really not, um, you know, what most. Corrections. The duration lasts. You know, if we look at 2010 and 2011, those corrections were four and five months in duration from peak to trough, and 2015 and 2016 was eight months. So I just think there's a bit of a an expectation reset that needs to happen, as long as well as a uh, a bit of a, a bigger capitulatory flush.
3: What do you make of um, the the bounce we're seeing? You mentioned long duration names, some of the more, you know, the innovation kind of names, the higher multiple sort of names. I mean, can you see a capitulation within a sector, even if the broader sector has not capitulated?
8: Yeah, I think I mean that's the bullish argument is that it's kind of a, a first in first out type of situation where a lot of these names that peaked you know the arc names peaked over a year ago um, are finally seeing some sort of bottom I, I don't know that we're there yet I don't think one day can tell you that I think a lot of a lot of it is position squaring as I mentioned um, the areas that have held up the best are, are during the worst today year-to-date and, and vice versa and so I think it's a lot of position squaring that can be an early signal that we're trying to find some sort of bottom but again if you look back you know throughout history it would it would be almost unprecedented to see a final low that didn't occur with at least one 90% down day. And we just haven't, we haven't seen one of those yet year to date, which is pretty ast- astonishing.
0: Josh. Hey, John, uh, I wanted to ask you, I guess on behalf of the viewers who are looking for opportunity right now, uh, as opposed to playing defense, what would you say ha- would have the better chance of a positive outcome given all of the the aspects of today's market. Would you tell them look for the stocks that are holding up the best? Those are the ones you want to be in when this correction or whatever it's to become bear market ends? Or would you tell them, you know what? Actually, look for the large cap tech uh or large cap growth names that are down 60-70% cuz those are going to bounce the hardest. Uh, or have the most short covering or whatever. Like, which side of the fence would you tell people to play on if they're looking to be opportunistic today?
8: Yeah, for, for the most part, if your time frame is more than a week or so, you're, you, you generally are better off sticking with those that are showing relative strength and those are holding up the best. Now, on a shorter-term basis, as I was mentioning today, it's, it's the opposite. So the areas that actually we like, uh, some of the financials and um, some of the you know, even defensive areas, those are, you know, are finally succumbing. And so that's the worst uh, part of the market today, but I think generally, you know, as we work through over the next day, few days and weeks, you know, finding those names that have held up the best, um, looking at the relative strength, are, are going to be the the ones that take you out of it and, and serve you better going forward. Um, you know, there's going to be exceptions, single stocks certainly, but generally, stocks that have gone down you know 60, 70, 80 percent after their initial reflex rally, which which could be substantial, but it's usually not that long in duration. You know, those usually don't um, have lasting uh, from at least from a historical perspective. Great answer. Great answer. Jonathan, Thank
3: you. thanks so much for your analysis. Appreciate it. Jonathan Krinsky, BTIG. According to history, Pete, we should be buckling our, our seatbelts because this could be four or five months before we actually hit a bottom.
4: Right. And Jonathan was talking about, you know, looking for that full capitulation, which we has been mm-hmm. seeing. That's what he was just describing as well. So there's a lot of different pieces to this, Mel. I got to tell you, we, we talked about this before the show, but We were looking at a lot of the different volatility that's being bought and the spider puts that are being bought, IWM puts that are being bought, Triple Q puts that are being bought. So there's been a lot of folks out there that aren't missing what's going on and seeing that there still could be some downside. That's why I'm not so convinced that we haven't uh, that we have hit the down the, the lows of the of of what we're going to get before we start to move to the upside. And I think what Jonathan had to say says a lot about that. I also would say this. I think there are names out there, for the most part, that do get crushed to the downside, maybe wrongly, those are probably going to be the best opportunities. I actually see a lot of names that are getting sold off with the markets that are that that not getting hit enough, quite frankly, because of where they trade from a P.E. perspective. But I do think there are going to be some quality names out there, and that's what we're all looking for, of course. Josh found Facebook and a couple others. Look at the P.E. now of Facebook, for instance. I mean it has reached a point where it feels like it, it needs to start moving to the upside again. But that doesn't dismiss the fact that there will be sellers out there as well. But I, I, I applaud uh, Josh for his buy of Facebook today.
3: 16 forward. There was an interesting note from Jeffries that was released yesterday afternoon, but I don't know if you caught it, from Brent Thill saying, why would, why would Meta unleash a massive buyback program if things are really going to go south? That would be the worst timing ever. So that's one component as to why They think that maybe Facebook, you know, will find a floor here. What do you think?
5: Well, I think that, you know, Facebook has been trading at a discount, even prior to this huge sell off after their earnings, a discount from a PE to the other Apples, Googles, Amazon and Microsoft, because I think that, you know, first of all, a lot of people just don't like how Mark Zuckerberg still owns all of the voting shares and they haven't been the best actors um, over the past five and six years. And so I think there's a discount there. But ultimately, if they continue to grow, and I think that the 10 billion they're spending in their version of the metaverse is actually a drop in the bucket to their balance sheet. And so I think that you will have value investors start coming in potentially to a Facebook, because with their earnings growth and these low PEs, you have to just take a step back and just do the math. And so I do think I do applaud Joss. It's probably a really good entry point. I can't bring myself to buy it just because of a million different reasons. I'd rather stick into the energy sector, but I definitely think you will see some value guys start to come in to this stock just because it is trading significantly less even than the
3: Mm S&P, and it's still growing quite quickly. Yeah. All right. Let's bring in Leslie Picker now. And there's Picker a buyback,
0: now. and it's a and it's and it's a yeah, big buyback.
3: That's that's what we meant. That was a that was a thrust of the note from Jefferies. Huge buyback underway. Um, all right. Let's get to Leslie Picker now. She's looking
6: at how this volatility could impact the largest investors and funds. Leslie, what'd you find? Hey, Melissa, so macro hedge funds have been the real standout so far in 2022, pulling in gains in January when others posted losses. We'll find out in a few weeks whether they successfully navigated this week's geopolitical events, although this is exactly the type of environment that would lead investors to allocate to macro funds. Macro funds bet on global bonds, currencies, commodities and equities and position their portfolios based on probabilities of political and economic events. They're supposed to be experts in geopolitics. Now, after years of st- struggling and underperforming. Macro funds gained 1.7 percent in January on an asset-weighted basis, according to HFR. That compares to losses of 4 percent for hedge funds overall and negative for the S&P 500, including dividends. We'll get returns for February in a few weeks' time. Bridgewater is the largest and perhaps most well-known macro fund, solidly in the green during January. J.P. Morgan urging investors in a new note to hedge their geopolitical risk by increasing allocations to commodities, energy, and materials, which the firm says would help diversify a portfolio in the face of rising inflation, geopolitical risks, and COVID reopening. So, Against this kind of confluence of factors that are out there, people are talking a lot about just the role macro funds will play in this environment. Melissa?
3: Leslie, thanks. Leslie Picker. Up next, we'll get to some more moves that our investment committee is making. Halftime is back in two.
9: You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. That is linkedin.com slash report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash report and get started.
3: The investment committee is making a lot of moves. Uh, Weiss, you sold Citigroup. Why?
2: Yeah, so Citigroup never got to be a full position. And with my view on, on the economy, which is not as bullish as everybody else's, and on the geopolitical front, I thought that you could see rates come down. I thought you could possibly see a further collapsing of the yield curve. So I've got long-term large positions in in Bank America and Goldman Sachs, which I've I've not pared back. I just thought that was enough uh, financial exposure.
3: Uh, Bryn, Roblox, what are you doing there? So as I've talked about before,
5: with high growth volatile names, I like to sell calls against them, and this is a, a good environment to do that. So I was up about 85% on my calls because the stock had gone down. So it gives you a little bit of green, and so I closed those out, and I also closed out my calls that I had on the queues, because I thought the queues were a little bit overdone.
3: So you still own Roblox, the stock, even though you close out your call position?
5: Yes, I was yes. just call okay. writing just to earn some extra income mm-hmm. on the name, and you know when the stock goes down, when you sell a call, it goes up. And so there's an inverse relationship.
3: But yes, I'm definitely along the Qs, Coinbase, and Roblox. Okay. Uh, Pete, you're buying some calls in uh, healthcare names. Which ones? Well, you know,
4: Merck specifically stood out for me, Mel. I I like these names. I I like the healthcare world. And I actually have a lot of different stock positions as well with Pfizer and Merck and others. But um, you know what? Sometimes you double up. I've done it in Apple. I do it in Facebook. I do it in a lot of different names. But with the healthcare... I just when I see the options getting bought like I'm seeing and, I, and rather than just adding to my stock position I'd like to take that ride for something a little bit better beta on the short term so that's why I added a few calls along the way in some of these different pharmaceutical areas.
3: All right. Well, as you all already know, it's a massive sell off day on Wall Street, but there are a number of stocks posting big gains today. We will trade those next on the half. Stocks are down today, but there are some winners if you know where to look. Moderna, one of the biggest gainers in the S&P 500 today on the back of its earnings beat. Weiss, you bought it. uh, You own it. Excuse me. You bought more today.
2: Yeah. So, look, I've got a lot of cash, as you know, as I've had, and I'm concentrating the portfolio more. So I added to it in the pre-market. Look, they announced, first of all, they beat the quarter, both on top line and bottom line, significantly. They announced $19 billion in uh, additional orders, so it's $5 times earnings with now 44 therapeutics and vaccines in the pipeline. It's still an extremely cheap stock, so I know I get a lot of blowback on what the stock's done. By the way, it's not alone in correcting massively, but I've said it before and I'll say it again. As you go out a few years, I believe this will be one of the most valuable healthcare companies in the entire world. So that's why I did. I also added to GXO, by the way, because that, they just blew out the quarter as well. Unique asset in the marketplace is showing incredible growth, made a phenomenal acquisition over the weekend. So I had added to that, too, again, bulking up the position.
3: Getting back to the conversation we were having earlier about how to view a stock from where it's been, Pete, Moderna is down, what, 40-something percent year to date. Do you look at this stock and think if you bought it today, as Steve did, you'd be getting it at a 40 percent discount versus the beginning of the year? You know, it—
4: in this case, yes, Mel. I, mm-hmm. I, I like the fundamental story behind, behind Moderna. And I think that, that Steve's been all over this for a really long period of time. And I know it's been a very volatile stock. But I will tell you, I mean, at these levels, I've been looking at this name for a long time. I have not been in it, but I have certainly considered on many occasions. This is definitely one that's on the table right now for me as well.
3: All right, let's get to Live Nation, a big winner in the S&P today. The company reporting better than expected revenue. Josh, you own this one. Reopening is happening. It is, hap- it is here, Josh.
0: <laughs> Mel, I've gotten beaten up in a number of stocks this year, but Live Nation is not one of them. In fact, it's I think uh, the best performing name I'm in year to year to date uh, or over the last three months, or however I'm looking at it. But uh, I think the reason why it's working so well is that not only have they come through Omicron without any issues whatsoever selling tickets, they're actually way ahead of where they were in 2019 listen to these numbers this is remarkable uh, and my, my hat is off to uh, Michael Rapino and the whole team there uh, their show count is up 30 uh, percent through February relative to 2019 for their largest venue shows the most profitable stuff they do that's like Dua Lipa and, and Billie Eilish and, and shows of that size but 45 million tickets sold already for 2022 events and that is way ahead of what anyone thought might be possible. So the the company is on fire. I do think if people aren't traveling as much uh, right now, especially with, with higher prices, it's probably not going to keep them in the house. And maybe that even plays into Live Nation because they're not going to do nothing, right? So I think the stock can work even from these levels. I'm glad to be in it much lower. I'm not selling it. And I continue to feel that this is really uh almost monopolistic this company uh in in a very good way for shareholders in terms of their hold on live entertainment they do they do it right the stock is uh rewarding us for being long and i think the reopening continues and the frenzy for going to live events continues so i'm sticking around
3: the vip sales are great and and that's high margin stuff so good for live nation up next, melissa do you want to come to
0: a billy eilish show with me
3: with you? (laughs) it's another whole other question. (laughs) We'll talk about that offline. (laughs) Up next, what Pete is seeing in the options market amid this sell-off and the moves he is making right now, halftime is back in two. We've got breaking news from Washington. President Biden saying that G7 leaders have agreed to move forward with, quote, devastating packages of sanctions and other economic measures to hold Russia to account. Keep in mind, we are expecting President Biden to speak uh, in the next hour or so, we'll bring that to you live as soon as he begins talking. Meantime, time for some unusual activity. Pete, uh, what are you seeing in the options market? Well, the
4: first one I'm going to give you is a bank. I'm looking at Wells Fargo, Mel. This is a $60 stock just a month ago, and here we are trading underneath 52, but they're buying the April 52.5 calls. 8,000 of those calls were bought today, looking for a little bit of a bounce and some upside. GM, similar story, was a $60 stock at the beginning of the year. Here it is in the 45s, and they're out there buying the April 50 calls, traded to about 15,000 of those calls today for a buck 45. So, like seeing that, looking for a little bit of a bounce, but buying a little bit of time as well. All right.
3: Got the final trades up next on the halftime report. Final trades Bryn. Coinbase Tomorrow. Weiss.
0: Volkswagen. Josh. Live Nation.
5: Pete.
4: Monster Beverage.
0: I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's
2: halftime report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Imagine a beautiful afternoon. The sun is shining and you get to enjoy it all because you just sat down on your John Deere mower. The smooth ride lets you escape into your yard. Intuitive controls make you feel like you're one with the machine. And with attachments for every season, you can enjoy it all year long. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand what it's like to drive a John
0: Deere mower, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeer.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.